0: A good guide can make a big difference in hearing the echoes of the ancient Greeks and Romans among the ruins of their long-gone world.
1: People, for example, in the 5th century BC could not understand how their ancestors did what they did. Of course, the explanation back then was a lot more easier. You know, giants with one eye came and did it. Hi, I'm
0: Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, experts from Egypt and Greece bring us sightseeing tips for deciphering the layers of history that litter the Mediterranean world. And for a wonderfully relaxing alternative, we'll look at vacationing on Turkey's Black Sea coast.
2: Americans are so rare. Just being there, going there, you'll attract people's attention.
0: And a native of Tangier points out the sights in his city's old town, Medina, where every
3: morning you're sure to get a whiff of freshly made bread from the neighborhood's communal ovens. Before noon and stuff, you see a lot of breads going, but later in the afternoon, a lot of homemade cookies. Rediscover the ancient
0: world on Travel with Rick Steves. While wandering through yet another set of pillars and arches when you tour the ancient sites in places like Greece, Turkey, or Egypt, you might be tempted to think it's just a pile of meaningless rubble. But when you travel armed with information about the ancients and when you try to look at the remains of temples and cities through the eyes of people who actually lived there, then the remnants of ancient Greece and Rome and even 7th century B.C. Macedonia can really take on a whole new life. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Experts from the eastern Mediterranean, Turkey, and Tangier join us in just a bit to show us how to resurrect the rubble of those ancient world sites. And while Turkey boasts some of the best-preserved ruins along its Aegean and Mediterranean shores, we'll start out today's travel with Rick Steves along Turkey's cooler Black Sea coast. It's where tourist crowds are rare and where you'll get a better chance at connecting with the locals away from the usual tour bus routes. Joining us to describe what Turkey's Black Sea region offers is Istanbul-based tour guide Lali Sermon Aran. Lali. Merhaba. Merhaba, Lali. Thanks for joining us. If you were to describe the Black Sea coast of Turkey, the northern coast, compared to the Mediterranean coast or the uh, Aegean coast, how how is it distinct? Why would you want to go to the Black Sea coast?
2: First of all, I would not compare them because they're very different. Aegean coastline and the Mediterranean coastline are destinations for vacations. There is sea, sun, and fun. Right, but while there is the sea and the sun, well, there is also fun along the Black Sea coast, but the nature is very different. Black Sea coastline, especially the eastern part of the Black Sea coastline that I suggest travelers go, is a semi-permanent rainforest.
0: So a rainforest. When we think of Turkey, we don't think of rainforest. We think of yes. sunshine. Yes. So this is a lush environment, and you're talking about the far east part of the Black Sea coast. Yes. So that's the area that borders on Georgia. Yes. Former Soviet Union. yes. Now, when we go over there, what is the sort of ethnicity of the people that we'll see?
2: That would be the reason of the travel, as a matter of fact, the culture there. Black Sea people of Turkey are distinctly different from the rest, not being any better or worse, but just different. um, Because of the harsh conditions of the sea and the mountains preventing them from mixing to the people inland, they remain distinct. They were able to preserve their culture.
1: What are
0: these people called? What is their...
2: A small portion of them are called Laz people. L-A-Z. L-A-Z. And they are known with their wisdom, quickness of their minds, and smart decisions.
0: Really? So they're wise people.
2: Yes, they are wise people.
0: Would they wear traditional costumes?
2: They would. Even though in this century we are in, especially the women, you would see them dressed in colored traditional outfits if you go to the small villages. The folk music is played with a Instrument similar to a violin, but three strings, not four strings. The name? Kemenche.
0: Kemenche. 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 And you're likely to see in somebody's home a kemenche and people dancing?
2: Yes, and you can, as a matter of fact, see people doing it on the streets. We call this dance Kicking Horon, Kicking the Dance. It's a very fast dance, and when they do it, the male dress in black and have decorations in silver. They're imitating the movement of the anchovies. The, very, enf- really? yes. mm-hmm.
0: the anchovy on the beach no the anchovy, the,
2: the anchovy caught in the net of oh, a fisherman when they're caught it, so they are yes. wigg- they're wiggling like an anchovy exactly. in a net mm-hmm.
0: I remember people shaking their shoulders in a beautiful way is yes. that is that from this mm-hmm. region
2: yes it is they shake their shoulders but really fast really, really fast. very fast it's like a vibrating way. It's fast, they shake their shoulders, they raise their hands, keep shaking and kick their feet on the ground. Is
0: that the women or the men that shake their shoulders? Both. Both. Mm-hmm. And the men are dancing like anchovies in a net? Yes. Las. And this is an area also famous for hazelnuts. Yes, it is. Strangely enough.
2: Yes. Because of the nature there, the rainfall, amount of the rainfall, the the qualities of the soil, it's just the excellent place to raise hazelnuts. And Turkey is the number one hazelnut producer of the world. When I came to United States, I was very surprised. Hazelnut here is a tree. Hazelnut back in eastern Turkey is a bush.
0: Now, we have nut crackers for our hazelnuts here, but I think the hazelnuts in Turkey are a little easier to crack. They
2: are smaller and have a softer shell, and it's easier to crack with your hands by putting them to two together. You crush them into one another, or even with your teeth you can so crack So you won't them.
0: break your teeth by cracking a hazelnut in I Turkey? I haven't yet. Okay. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lali Iran. We're talking about Turkey's Black Sea coast, the northeast coast of Turkey. Our phone number is 877 333 7425. And we got Boomer on the phone from... You're in Bucharest, Romania. Is that right, Boomer?
4: Uh, That's that's right.
0: Thanks for calling in from Bucharest. What are you doing in Bucharest?
4: Uh, Oh, I'm on a business trip, but it's one of my favorite cities. Romania is an incredible country and I always enjoy coming here.
0: Well, you're just a couple hours away from Turkey there. Do you have a question for Lolly on uh, the Black Sea Coast?
4: Yes, I do. In fact, I'll be in Turkey next week. So here's my question. So I've traveled all over most of Turkey, except the Black Sea area. Yes. Now, if I was in Istanbul and I had on a business trip and I had two free days where would you recommend that I visit to get the best Black Sea experience in Turkey? If I had two free days where should I go?
2: Take a flight out of Istanbul to Trabzon.
4: It's Trabzon, okay. Trabzon,
2: yes. It's along the Black Sea coastline and the flight duration should be about an hour and a half. And first day, see Trabzon itself, the city itself, and the monuments in the city, which includes Hagia Sophia Church from the Byzantine period with beautiful mosaics. And spend some time in the city. Spend time in the coffee shops with the people. They'll be interested in seeing you visit because it's an unconventional destination in Turkey.
0: There's not many tourists in no, Trabzon. No, there are not But many. this is the big city there on the eastern Black Sea coast. It's spelled T-R-A-B-Z-O-N, In uh, much of Europe these days, you can just hop on a plane very cheaply and fly less expensive even than the train. Can you fly inexpensively on domestic Turkish airlines?
2: Very much if you are using the secondary airport in Istanbul. Okay. We have this big international airport, Atatürk International Airport in European part of the city. But if you don't mind traveling to the Asian part of the city, to the Sabiha Gökçen Airport, international code is SAW, you can take very inexpensive flights out of that airport to any destination in Turkey. So
0: what would you expect if you're, let's say you're a tourist in Istanbul and you've got, like, boom, or two or three extra days and you want to really go someplace different. In one hour, you could be on the far side of Turkey. What would it cost round trip? What would you hope to get a flight, just approximately?
2: Approximately. The flight prices increase as less time
0: left for the
2: the flight. But you can easily consider about $100 one way, Okay. So round-trip flight would be about $200, including the taxes, insurances, service fees, this and that, which is really reasonable. That's
0: pretty good. So for a couple hundred bucks, he gets a whole different dimension of his Turkey experience. Would it be realistic to rent a car at the airport in Trabzon and then have that mobility, or what would you recommend for Boomer? Just
2: for two days, you can do without a car because I recommend that you stay in the city and see only one town of it, which is south of Trabzon called Machka. M-A-C-K-A, which is the way to the Sumela Monastery.
0: Oh, the hidden monastery. To the
2: monastery of Mother Mary on the cliffside on the mountains.
0: Describe that, because it's one of the most dramatic sites in all of Turkey.
2: It really is such a visual place. Just imagine a sheer rock mountain, and on the side of it, there's this monastery that was built over a long time, rock by rock, piece by piece. And it's not sticking outside. It's not poking out the mountain, but it's built into it and it's an amazing sight to see. It's like an eagle's nest.
0: An eagle's nest. And how far back does that go? From what century would you would you guess?
2: The middle Byzantine period, 10th and 11th centuries. So a
0: thousand years old.
2: Approximately.
0: Wow. Now Boomer will be in Trabzon, which it, it, you don't go to Trabzon for famous household word good. kind of sites, but you can go for the culture, the yes. food, the the people, the activities. What are some ways where Boomer could collect some memories that would last for the rest of his life as far as just connecting with people in that town? What might he do for an experience?
2: Coffee shops.
0: And do what in a coffee shop? Coffee
2: shops. Well, he doesn't need to do anything. Americans are so rare. there are foreign travelers. And just being there, going there, you'll attract people's attention. And they will actually want you to take the first step for them. They'll be shy to come to yeah. you. And if you just say the merhaba in Turkish, even if you cannot do more than that, that will be the first step to just unlock the culture.
0: Boomer, when I was in this part of Turkey for my first time, exactly what Lolly said was my experience. It's like you came in from another planet.
2: Or go to a barber shop, have a haircut.
0: Tell us about that experience.
2: Well, it's haircut as a haircut sounds like in most of the cultures of the world. But if you, especially in smaller cities, a male goes to a barbershop. You have first have a haircut and you have the shave. And then for fine hair up on your cheek closer to your eye or your ear hair, they'll burn them. Burn them? They'll burn them, yes. Or clear them with a rope. So
0: they'll spank you with a flaming cloth to burn the little hairs off your ear.
2: But the barbershop is the place to make friends.
0: I'll tell you, I did that. I went to a barbershop. My shave was so close. I didn't need to shave literally for, for several days. I've never had such a close shave and it's an experience I'll never
2: forget. So, a coffee shop and a barber shop.
0: There you go, Boomer. And yeah, does that help you?
4: Hey, thank you very much. I, I would actually validate what you say. The Turkish people are incredibly friendly. I, I've had some wonderful experiences in coffee shops. Uh, I've actually uh, been invited to have tea with a construction crew. I hmm. mean, I'm just walking along taking pictures, and uh, they invited me into a little shed, and we had coffee at about five o'clock in the morning. And also, too, travel within Turkey, if you're flexible, is very, very affordable. Uh, I had a round trip from uh, Istanbul to Izmir uh, for $99 U.S., so it's an incredible country, very friendly people, but I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing the Black Sea part of Turkey, and I'll be there next week, and I will be visiting Trabzon. Thank you very much. You're
2: very welcome. Enjoy the anchovies. (laughs) <laughs> That's
4: right. I've had anchovies on the Bosphorus. I, I did the, uh, the one-day trip up the uh, Bosphorus. Okay. And you call them that little uh, Asian fishing village and you get fresh anchovies. It's wonderful. And yes, Rick, I have had several haircuts in Turkey and they do use the flame foil on you. The <laughs> trick is you have to keep very, very still. <laughs> Otherwise <laughs> it could be nasty. But There goes the your eyelashes. <laughs> an experience. What happened to your eyebrows?
0: <laughs> All right, Boomer, have a good time.
4: Thank you very much. Again, okay. I appreciate all
0: the help. Rick. Thank you. Take care. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lolly Sermon-Iran about the Black Sea Coast. We're also talking just about the general wonderment of traveling in Turkey. Anywhere you go in Turkey, especially if you get away from the tourists, and that's the beautiful thing about the Black Sea Coast, you'll find gracious, hospitable people, and I would say a, a real risk for a lot of travelers, American travelers, is they're confronted with this incredible hospitality, and they are nervous to accept it. It's really important when you get invited somewhere, take them up on it.
2: They should not be offended or surprised with it. That's the nature of the Turkish people. When I'm asked what's the most striking thing about Turkey, I don't list the monuments, but I say the people of Turkey.
0: And most of the people are Muslims. And in the Muslim faith, how is a visitor from a foreign land considered?
2: Any visitor is considered sent by God.
0: And when you're sent by God, you're a blessing for them. That's it. All right. Alali Aran, thanks so much, and uh, we're all dreaming right now about the Black Sea coast of Turkey.
2: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Next, guides from Greece and Egypt help make the ruins of past civilizations from all over the Mediterranean world come alive. It's Travel with Rick Steves.
5: My name is Human Majd, and I like to travel with Rick Steves. In Farsi, that would be,
0: When you travel all the way to the Mediterranean, you're going to have the chance in a lifetime to be just wowed by the antiquities, the wonders of the ancient world. But it takes some skills, it takes some ability to really appreciate what you're looking at. We're joined by Anastasia Gaetano, who's a guide in Greece from Thessaloniki, and Colin Clement, who's a guide who resides in Alexandria in Egypt. And we're going to talk about sightseeing skills for the ancient world. Colin, Anastasia, thanks for joining us. Thank nice you. Here. You take travelers around the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, what would be a very important skill to have as a prerequisite for understanding and depreciating some ancient sites? Anastasia?
1: I believe it's very important to forget what you know about today's world. You can't compare different things. We have a different sense of morality. We have different habits. We live in a different world. And also, our, our eye is full of images because we go to the movies. We see television. So we don't many times appreciate what an effect something that we think is normal or common had on someone in ancient times. So if we leave all that prejudice behind, then we can definitely comprehend more and better.
5: It's a good point. I think it's also important to remember that, you know, the people of the past are exactly the same as us in terms of mental capacity. Mm-hmm. We're not, you know, we're not talking about sort of sloping, browed grunty people. You know, if somehow you could sort of Star Trek-wise beam somebody out of the third century before Christ into our era and they could send them it. to school, they just turn out like us. So... When you stand back and look at all that engineering, which is, you know, all these massive monuments, think, how did they do that? Well, you know...
0: Well, they just got out a piece of papyrus and figured it out. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they knew mathematics. Mm-hmm. Let's talk mm-hmm. about the technological marvels because this really is really impressive. When you think of acoustics, they understood acoustics. Absolutely. I mean, you go to, to Epidavros, for example, in, in the Peloponnese,
5: the acoustics of that theater which was built... The third century before Christ, and the acoustics there
0: are still absolutely excellent to the extent that in they, fact they do concerts they now without used, without amplification.
5: Still use it, yeah.
0: Anastasia, what what sort of technological marvels impress you when you go to one of the wonders of ancient Greece?
1: It is true that you don't see much of that anymore, although that theatre is a living example. And we do now know exactly how they thought of it, how they designed it. We know why the acoustics are so good. But what I find very interesting is that this particular marvel impressed people in ancient times as well.
0: So they would travel far and wide and they would get to the theater and they would go, hey, good acoustics.
1: Not just good acoustics, great acoustics.
0: Great acoustics. Let's go to Epidaverus, yeah. I've stood right there in the center, friends, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. And you feel like, man, you can project to the... I don't know how many people would be in the uh, theater. How many people would be in Epidophras?
5: 12,000.
0: 12,000 people. The the people who are commissioning these monuments
5: in the past were perhaps doing it for the same reason that people today commission skyscrapers or huge concert halls. I mean, they're they're works projects which we're going to employ, you know, keep the economy taken over, and they're status symbols. They just are, like today, really. Just
0: like today. You know, The culture is expressing its ambitions through its own constructions. Mm, definitely. That's a very important mindset thing, as Anastasia was saying, to remember these people have never seen a moving image. They've never seen a photograph. Uh, and then just to have a simple carved relief would be something you'd tell your children about. Well, one of, the earliest,
5: one of the earliest symbols or the earliest icons or images of the lighthouse of Alexandria, which is one of the wonders of the, of the ancient world, was a glass jar that was found just outside of what is now modern Kabul in Afghanistan. It no longer exists. It's unfortunately been destroyed in all the turmoil that, that Afghanistan's experienced. That, but it was a tourist trinket, just to see this, that someone took home to say to their family, you know, see what I saw when I went to Alexandria.
1: And I find also very interesting that sometimes today, because we're so based and and dependent on our technology and what we can do is we can't understand how these people managed to to build all these great constructions. But I think it's very interesting to see how people, for example, in the 5th century BC, could not understand how their ancestors in the 8th century or in the 2nd millennium BC did what they did. Of course, the explanation back then was a lot more easier. You know, giants with one eye, the cyclops came and did it.
0: I love that. And you're thinking specifically about the palace in Mycenae.
1: For example, And the people
0: would call that uh, Cyclopean architecture just because they couldn't imagine some man carrying those big stones. Exactly. So when you go to Mycenae, I just always think, wow, Mycenaeans were a thousand years before Socrates and Plato. And they would go down there and they would see the remains of this palace and they would see those huge stones, actually, I guess, bigger than what the Greeks were using, and they just shook their head and thought, no human being could do this.
1: Yes, because they did not have the technical, technological means that they had, so they could not understand or comprehend how would someone, without having this crane that they had in the 5th century BC, could pull something like that off thousand years before that.
0: So they attribute it to giants. Exactly. Imagine looking at the pyramids in the ancient days. Well, I imagine looking at the pyramids
5: today, I mean, there are still people who insist that the pyramids were built by aliens or outer space or whatever. The, the, the term is pyramidiot.
0: A pyramidiot, a, pyramid. a person who refuses to person, believe humans yeah. did this. Yeah. yeah, And then you would respect the fact that they were just as smart as us. They may not have had computers, but they figured it out. They figured it out one way or another. We're still not sure exactly how they did do it, but nonetheless, they did but do they it. But they did it. Yeah. You know, when you, when you are trying to understand all of this, it's also very important to get into that that mind frame and understand... The mystery of the world. People didn't know what thunder and lightning was. They didn't know why the sun rose every day, and they would explain it with their various religions. And then to understand the art and the architecture, you really need to understand the religions.
5: Well, you need to to a certain extent understand the religions, because they would use, perhaps, myth and religion to explain natural phenomena, of which we now have, perhaps, better scientific explanations. But I didn't mean to say they were sort of cowering and terrified of it all. They mm-hmm. would rationalize it in the same way we rationalize all sorts of things we don't necessarily understand ourselves. But they were still quite capable, certainly the ancient Egyptians were obviously very capable of serious rational scientific thought. Otherwise, they would not have been able to build the things they built, nor you know, manage the land the way they managed it. Well, speaking of rational thought, what
0: about sex? I mean, that must have been a mystery to them. (laughs) Not an awful lot of rational (laughs) thought when it comes to sex, actually. (laughs) But I mean, when you think of this art, it's all fertility symbols and stuff, and there's so much fertility woven into it in Greece. You think of the Cycladic fertility symbols and so on.
1: Well, fertility symbols. It is true that um, most of the fertility symbols were genitals. That's true. Uh, Nowadays, maybe that would uh, insult our moral feeling, but... um, Back in the old days, well, of course, they did not go around naked. Like many times we see the uh, statues in the museums, like of naked men, and then people think, oh God, they did not have anything to put on. Of course they did, but there were naked athletic competitions, and they did train naked, the naked body of a man, not of a woman. But that was something common. So It was nothing really um, hidden or unknown or dirty or or dirty or nothing. And besides, how can you get children if you don't have genitals I nature mean, right. and how do you simple.
0: how do you survive if you don't procreate and mm. if they want to be fertile maybe they need to worship something to increase their fertility i think the very earliest statues are fertility statues fertility statues That's true. Well,
5: it's also a question is how, how were these worshipped as well i mean i think i don't know if people necessarily Understand how these fertility symbols would be used, I mean our notions of worship are, are veneration and, and complete belief in because that's how our religion has evolved we you know we believe completely in, for example Christ, if you know if we were a Christian or we believe completely in the teachings of Allah if you are a Muslim, but did these people actually look at those little clay fertility symbols and believe completely that they were the source, or were they symbols, were they like perhaps icons in the Orthodox Church? And they oh. would accept them and gather them. And yeah, they were, they were means a... of contemplation. Now, in Egypt, where you're from, I understand nearly all the art we look at today is funerary art. Yes, mostly it's within a funerary context, but there are you know
0: straightforward decorative art as but, well. But help me get this straight, you've got the Nile that sort of cut the world in a north and south sort of halves, and uh, the sun would rise on one side and set on, on the, the other. other side. Is yeah. it fair to say most of the ancient art you'd see from Egypt would be on the side is, where it,
5: the sun it's sets? All, it's, uh, yeah, it's
0: all on, on the western bank,
5: yeah, specifically in the, the concentrations of the old capitals, absolutely, yeah.
0: And that would be because symbolically where the sun sets you'd bury your... That's your where the sun or goes or down, yeah, yeah. So these are examples of how you can get a sort of an appreciation of the mindset of people to understand the sightseeing you'll be seeing today. On Travel with Rick Steves today, we're learning about viewing the ancient world in a whole new light. Through the mindset of people from long ago. Our guests are expert guides from the Eastern Mediterranean. Colin Clement joins us from Alexandria in Egypt. And Anastasia Gaetano comes to us from Thessaloniki in Greece. When we travel through the ancient world, you gotta prioritize, and we just hear so many superlatives, and you gotta see this site and that site. Anastasia, when somebody is in Greece, in, in Athens and going on the Peloponnesian peninsula or out to the islands. How do you prioritize on your sightseeing so you don't go crazy and try to see too much?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Well, you definitely have to see the sightseeing, what is mainly known. But I try to see the big sanctuaries of ancient times because they were the place where people would socialize. This was the place where you could come closer to a god this was the place also for the athletic competitions it was the place where everybody would meet so it was the um, core of living and the, the core of their religions and there were four major sites one was delphi delphi, or the, delphi oracle. the oracle second one was olympia
0: okay where the this, first olympic games
1: where the first olympic games took place And the last one's in antiquity, and all of them apart from one. And then there are two more which are not that known. The one is Nemea, where it was a sanctuary dedicated to Hercules because that's the place where he had his first tusk and he killed the lion of Nemea.
0: Where is Nemea?
1: Nemea is in the northeast of Peloponnese, not very far from Corinth. Okay. It's between Corinth and Mycenae.
0: Is there much to see there, actually?
1: Yes, it's quite interesting. There is a beautiful museum where you can see both about everyday life and also about the athletic competitions. Almost a bit more than the half of the stadium is still intact, and you can see it very well, the start line. You can see also the ancient baths there, and uh, there is the American school, archaeological school, digging there and restoring, and now you can see a lot of the columns of the temple restored. And the fourth is Isthmia, that's also not very far from there, and that was a sanctuary dedicated to Poseidon, who was the god of the sea.
0: What is the name again?
1: Isthmia. It's I-S-T-H-M-I-A. I-S-T-H-M-I-A.
0: Okay. Colin, what would you add to that if you're prioritizing for sites? In, in Greece. In, in in Greece, yeah.
6: Oh,
5: my goodness. Well, Mycenae. i have got to see Mycenae because, it, you know, Mycenae... Ties in with Agamemnon and Menelaus, the Trojan War. I mean, it stretches sort of Greek history out of Greece and across the Aegean and up into the
0: modern era because and, we and still just, read these stories. And so. there's so much to see there. And it is a thousand years before a lot of so, these other yeah, sites. Yeah. So it is ancient, ancient. Yeah, it's, it's just two hours south of Athens, by the way. Absolutely. so quite it's quite accessible. It's what close? else?
5: Oh, I'd be tempted to go north to go to Vergina, to go to Pella, to go to the the royal sites of Alexander the Great. Because if the knowledge of Greece came down to us in the modern era, is because he spread it outside of mainland Greece into the Hellenistic world from which it then traveled into the modern world. And I think I would
0: add Epidaurus for the great theater. Epidaurus for the theater, perhaps. Of course, the Acropolis in Athens with the Acropolis Museum and Ephesus on the mainland of Turkey but in ancient Greece. But that's more of a Roman site, isn't it?
5: Well, it it stretches over. I mean, it's difficult to build walls between eras, frankly. History is a continuum. There's so many sites that are just really undervisited in the Holy Land. Go to Jarash as well, outside of modern Amman in Jordan. I mean, you've got a whole Roman city almost extant with colonnades running along the roads as if it had never fallen down.
0: So if I was an ancient tourist, what would be uh, your advice to me, Colin? An ancient tourist? Yeah. Oh, well,
5: clearly, if you're in the common era, if you're in the second century A.D., you would get a copy of Pausanias' travels in Greece. What's his name? Pausanias. Pausanias. Pausanias, P-A-U-S-A-N-I-A-S. He was a Greek who traveled around the ancient world in the 2nd century AD and literally wrote it all up and drew pictures and created plans and all the rest of it. it and is, you can
0: get a, a modern version it of that? It still
5: exists. You can go into Borders or go on to Amazon and you can get Pausanias' travels.
0: Anastasia, if you're going to take me to one... I know there's, it's a ridiculous question, but <laughs> take me to one place where I can really just go, wow, I'm so glad I traveled all the way to Greece to check this out.
1: That's a very difficult question. That's true. But I would choose one site that maybe is not that known, and that would be in the north of Greece, and that would be Vergina. That's the modern name of the place. It is there where the first capital of the ancient Macedonian kingdom used to be. But in the 70s, the grave, or the tomb, better said, of Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great, was found, and the most uh, important thing, unlooted. Unlooted. Wow! And you can see the tomb today. It's not just one tomb. It was under um, a funerary hill. There were four graves there, two unlooted, uh, two looted. The second unlooted one most probably belonged to the son of Alexander the Great, Alexander the Fourth.
0: And where did all the treasures of that unlooted tomb end up?
1: Where did they end up? That's the most interesting part of all. It's exactly there what was found. So you can go in there, there is a building now protecting the whole thing, but you just enter the building, which simulates the ancient funerary hill and also the entrance is made like the ancient entrances to those tombs. And you can go in and you can see the actual grave, not a replica, not a copy, it's the actual grave. And you can see also wonderfully done exhibition in front of those graves with all the artifacts that were found inside.
0: What is the name of this site again?
1: The name of the site is Vergina. It's a V-E-R-G-I-N-A. And
0: Vergina, And that's in northern Greece. That's in northern and it's Greece. it's a Macedonian royal tomb. Exactly. Wow, I'm putting that on my list.
1: And as far as I know, that is worldwide the second richest unlooted tomb after the tomb of Tutankhamun in Egypt Cullen, so far.
0: Colin, if you had a, one wish as a tourist today to get a sense of the grandeur of the ancient world, where would you take me? Oh, how ancient are we allowed to be, Rick? You can go as ancient as you like. I would take you to
5: Egypt where I live and I would take you down to Luxor. It's greatly visited, but it blows me away every time to walk into the hypostyle hall, the big columned hall of Karnak Temple just north of Luxor. Mm. It is just, uh, it's outstanding. It's almost inhuman. And it—it it, 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 to be honest, it makes... The Parthenon seems sort of small and insignificant, and just a pile of rubble when you walk in there. It
0: just blows you away. It's a forest of huge sequoia-type columns, yep, very close together, so yeah. you can almost not see the room. Yeah. I think um, sort of indicating that they didn't have the sophistication architecture, oh, speaking sorry, to, no, could, yeah, to, to have a, a broad expanse above them. Yeah, I mean, the lintels
5: have to be close because they, they hadn't worked out anything else rather than you know, in straight blocks on uprights. But
0: you walk into there and you just go, my goodness, what century was that from?
5: Oh, it goes back until, what, about at least the 17th century before. All right, so 1,500 years but before it, the Agroplers. But it
0: was active for a long, long time. So, Colin, that's a good reminder to me that we can go ancient to Greece and then we can go ancient again, back to Egypt, and all of it is within access to us travelers if we know where to go. And most importantly, to be prepared to understand the wonders of those civilizations. Colin Clement, Anastasia Gaitanu, thank you very much for helping us out. You're welcome. Thank,
1: thank you. you.
0: We leave the sands of Egypt now for a very different sandy place, the beaches of Florida. For some of our listeners, the sands of Miami Beach are home. Ron Feldheim describes what it's like in this trio of traveler's haiku he sends us after an evening stroll on the
7: beach.
4: Pale moon over sea, dying sun hides behind clouds, frenzied
5: world pauses, Sands shift underfoot, waves break, light breeze stirs sea oats, peaceful joy swells heart. Cloud caps catch last light, eastward sky brightens like
0: dawn, day succumbs to night. There's one more place in the Old World for us to visit today on Travel with Rick Steves, and it's on the western side of the Mediterranean. Up next, it's a guided tour of the Old Quarter of Tangier in Morocco. We're at 877-333-7425, or you can share your finds in the Old World with us online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. It's the best way I know to add an exotic twist to your European travels by actually leaving Europe for a peek at northern Africa. And it's less than two hours by boat from Gibraltar and the coast of southern Spain. Tangier in Morocco was once known as a refuge for artists and con artists. In recent years, it's caught the attention and the favor of Morocco's king. He's been investing money in cleaning up and refurbishing the city, making it more welcoming for tourists. We're joined right now in travel with Rick Steves by a friend who's a native of Tangier, he makes his living proudly guiding visitors around his enchanting city. Aziz Begtouri joins us in our studio to recreate a stroll with us through the streets of old Tangier. Aziz, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you for inviting me, Rick.
0: Tangier is the gateway to Europe for Morocco. Yeah. And it has an interesting history. Uh, The previous king, Hassan II, didn't like Tangier. Mm -hmm. What was the problem with Tangier from a conservative Moroccan point of view?
3: Because uh, Tangiers used to be an international city. Tangiers,
0: and what does that mean, an international, international
3: city? city. Uh, when Morocco was under the French protectorate, Tangiers was ruled by many countries at the same time, by the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Italian, German. And at that time, it was a tax-free zone.
0: Is that because Tangier was so strategically located on the Strait of Gibraltar that uh, the Allied powers didn't want any one country controlling it?
3: Yeah. Because the time of, uh, you know, in the early 20th century, it was the time of the imperialism. European countries were invading African countries and Middle Eastern countries. So it was a sharing. Every country, you know, take one country. So France occupied Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia. The Italians occupied Libya. The British occupied the biggest part of the Middle East and Egypt and so on. But Tangiers, because of its strategic position right on the Strait of Gibraltar, so... Everybody wants it. Everybody wants it, so so nobody gets
0: it, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So I understand, because Tangier was this international city, it Mm -hmm. had a lot of international exposure, but it sort of offended the rest of the country, and the king kind of disowned the city, now you have a new king came in 10 or 12 years ago. Yeah. How did that change Tangier's position in Morocco?
3: Oh, it has become one of the leader cities in Morocco. So the so new
0: king said, it's time for Tangier Tangiers, to get back on yeah. the Back on the, team. the track, yeah. Because so I-
3: Tangier is the gate to Africa. It is the image of Morocco. So he come up, he loves it, he comes a lot to it.
0: And I'll tell you, it used to be the image of Morocco, and in the 90s, it was a bad image. image. It was a horrible city, mm-hmm. And everybody just said, oh, it's the armpit of Africa. You mm-hmm. know? Now, true. it's a completely different experience. Different. So when we're going to Tangier, mm-hmm. it's very easy just to take that ferry for an hour or an hour and a half from Spain, and when we walk off the boat into Tangier as a tourist, an independent tourist, yeah. what's the best thing for us to do?
3: Uh it's to try to get an official guide. Okay. Best thing. Talk to him how much time you are gonna spend with him and make sure that he takes you more to see the real city and learn about Morocco cultural history, instead traditions, what? instead of taking you shopping okay. all the time.
0: So there is a big temptation for yeah. tourists to get grabbed by some unofficial guide or yeah. some aggressive guide and just become a shopping trip. Yeah, And if you want to shop, that's not the that's, end of the world. No, no, no. Because but if a, you really want to sightsee, okay, yeah. let's say you're a little bit sloppy, you're very independent, you come off the boat, you have nothing arranged in advance. Mm-hmm. Can you find a guide who's good right there at the ferry? There are guides there at the port. And are, are these guides, uh, you would talk to them and get comfortable and exactly. sure they speak yeah, they English? Yeah, they all speak English, yeah. And you make a price? Yeah, you make a price, okay, make you, it clear. You make a very clear price, you pay when you're finished. You're finished, If you're satisfied. End. Yeah. And you make it clear, I do not want to only go shopping. Yeah. I want to have history, I want mm-hmm. to have cultural experiences. Mm-hmm. In most Moroccan cities, there's a colonial French part yeah. and there's an old Arabic part. Yeah. Explain how that works in Tangier.
3: Well, Tangiers, we have the old city, which is the Kasbah and uh, the Medina. So the kasbah is the historical part. So the word kasbah is a fortification. It's a 10th century fortification. And that historic, and it is residential, where traditional families live. And then there's the downtown of the kasbah, the Medina, which is the market area. Where okay. Those are fascinating
0: local yeah. market. So you can go through the medieval, tangled old quarter. Yeah. It's so romantic, and, yeah. and uh, it just feels so...
3: Yeah, walking through the old city is going back in history. It's amazing, narrow alleys, uh, Moorish architecture, and Tangers because it has that international touches. Even the old city in Tangiers has uh, some European influence.
0: Okay, so we'll go to the, the new city in a moment, but I just want to have a, a dose of this old city. Mm-hmm. If you wander deep into the Medina. Yeah. Is that what we call What does Medina mean?
3: Medina is the city. The city. city okay, so deep yeah. into the old Arabic city, city yeah. you'll get a sense that
0: a lot of things are done communally because people yeah. don't have a lot of money. Yeah. There would be a community bakery you could find. Expa- yeah. Explain how that the, works.
3: The the people on the Kasbah and Medina still live very traditional way. People maintain their customs and traditions, and for that reason we still maintain there a lot of big heritage, for instance, community oven. So all the families make bread in their homes. They make the dough every single day and take it to community oven to be baked. And it's a wood oven. Wood oven. So the big oven is a community service. Community and for, service. A, for
0: a few pennies, you can bring your dough yeah. here and yeah. the baker will cook it, cook for, it you. for you. Yeah. So in the morning, you'll see children bringing their, ba- the their mother's, mother's dough into the market yeah. and, and to get
3: baked up. Also, uh, homemade cookies. And by before noon and stuff, you see a lot of breads going. But later in the afternoon, a lot of homemade cookies. And also they take their salad to be roasted. Sometimes they take a lot of uh, peanut to be roasted. uh, So they roast all sorts of things. Yeah, all sorts of
0: things. So now this is interesting because you do have this home cooking, but Mm -hmm. then it's more efficient to send your child or you can walk down to the bakery Mm -hmm. and have it baked up. As a tourist, is it okay to step in and watch the action? Yeah,
3: yes. I do always take my people and There's take really them it, no because it's,
0: uh, it's no problem. In fact, for a tourist, it's probably a good idea to be a little bit curious and curious. step into doors.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Educated, gentle and soft and ask permission and stuff like this, and they appreciate it. And Fair it's not. a
0: magical yeah. experience. It's an otherworldly experience mm-hmm. when you go to Tangier. And the amazing thing is you're
3: just a couple hours away yeah. from Spain. Yeah. it's uh, Coming from Spain to Morocco, you step to centuries behind. It's it's, a, and,
0: the, and the interesting is it could just be one day. You could leave your bags in Spain. You could yeah. take the early boat in, have 10 hours in Tangier yes. and step into the community bakery and, yeah. uh, and try some of the new cookies. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're walking through Tangier with Aziz Begduri. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Donna's on the line in Yakima, Washington. Hi, Donna. Do you have a comment for Aziz?
6: I do. Yes, um I went to Tangier toward the end of August last year and I was met at the boat by a guide. I was very impressed. It was a a guide that was an official one for Morocco and at first I I didn't uh, want to have a guide. I thought that I could do it uh, myself as far as touring Tangier. But uh, Ramadan was going on at the time mm-hmm. and we didn't know what was open and what wasn't. So it was a good thing that we did get a guide, and uh, he took us to all of the places for the photo opportunities, the fish market, Uh, we saw the fish coming in from the harbor, you know, being unloaded, and all kinds of fish that we'd never even seen before. We got to uh, go to see the sights from the Medina, from up above, we saw, you know, the Atlantic, and we saw Gibraltar, and uh, the Strait of Gibraltar there, we saw the Snake Charmers, we were very impressed with the carpet demonstration. We did go to a, a carpet demonstration, and um, he showed us the quality of the, the carpets there. We felt very safe the whole time that we were there and really enjoyed our time with the guide, who was very professional.
0: Donna, excuse me, did you, did you just meet the guide and, and arrange it on the spot, or did you reserve it in advance?
6: No, I did not. Um, we didn't reserve it in advance. The guide approached us. He said there are 644 streets in the Medina, and you can <laughs> easily get lost. Well, and, um, well, this is
0: great news for me because it means that a traveler like you can stumble into Tangier oh. and use your common sense and talk to the guy and realize, you know, they're businessmen. Did you establish a price then with him?
6: Um, yes. Well, Majik, his name was Majik. He, he told us uh, what his price was up front. And what was that? He said that it was going to be 25 euros. And that was for the four or five hours.
0: That is so cool. That's like $35 for your own guide for four or five hours. I would say that's one of the best deals going.
6: Yes, and and he also said that if we weren't satisfied at the end of the four or five hours, we didn't have to pay him anything.
0: And were you satisfied?
6: uh, We were very satisfied. So, of course, we gave him a tip at the end then, too. Um, He helped us get there. He arranged the taxi. The taxi was included in the price to take us to... The Medina, uh, of course, with the two-hour time difference, too, we arrived on the first ship in the morning, and so things weren't open, and it was also Ramadan, so we went to the hotel there. I believe it's the Izmir, and um, he showed us the photographs of all of the movie stars that had stayed there and told us that next time we come back, he knew that we weren't staying in the hotel and staying overnight. We were just going on the boat for the five hours. Um, he told us that, you know, if you come back next time, it's very reasonable, you know, according to, uh, you know, Western European prices, Oh yeah, that we could stay in the hotel next time. So I think that next time we go, we will stay there.
0: You know, Um, I I think that's a good idea, but you had your whole experience just as a day trip from Spain then. Yes. (laughs) Now, talk about the photo ops, because they take you through kind of a routine. You know, the tourists always do this little gauntlet of classic, sort of cliched Moroccan experiences, right? So you saw the Snake Charmer. Yes. Did you see the camel?
6: No, there were no no camels.
0: No camels. Did um, you see the dancing group with the little beanies that twirl around?
6: Yes. Yes, we we did see them towards the end. Um like I said it was very early in the morning and because it was Ramadan, most of the businesses were not even open at all. Right. And mm-hmm. that was another thing too is that we had brought our food over with us on the boat because we didn't have time to eat breakfast from the hotel and in uh, Tarifa, Spain, before we left, and it was a good thing because we didn't see any restaurants open or any place to eat during the day, and so he took us Mm -hmm. to a park because they don't, of course, eat during the day. They eat or drink, you know, nothing during the daytime.
0: During that one-month period of Ramadan when they um, they have their last meal before the sun rises and then they all dig in mm -hmm. when the sun sets. Donna, thanks for your call.
4: Thank
6: you so much. Sounds like you had a
0: lot of fun. Happy (laughs) travels. Thank you, Rick. Aziz, I want to talk just for a minute about the new city because yeah. uh, Mohammed VI, the new king, has done a lot to to send money from the federal government yeah. to Tangier. Yeah, uh, the beach is all cleaned up. Describe the beach to us.
3: Uh, the beaches are
0: fantastic beaches
3: in Morocco. We have very long, white, sandy beaches, golden, fine sand, very clean water because we don't have pollutions. There is no chemicals. So, oh, right in the middle of Tangier, right in the a middle huge, of Tangier,
0: huge crescent beach, and yeah. it seemed like it was a park,
3: treated like a park. There were yeah, kids it is. playing soccer, soccer there every day. People go down to the afternoon and play soccer. Saturday and Sunday is early. The whole day they play soccer there.
0: People burying themselves in sand, sand for the, in medicinal the summer, value, be- yes, believing it. Uh, Take like it, rheumatism, re- the rheumatism cure. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I understand you've just opened a new stadium. Yes, a new stadium in Morocco. We have opened three stadiums. One of them in Tangiers. Now Morocco is. Um, to Europe, kind of like Mexico is to the United States. It's a mm-hmm. source of cheap labor. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of Absolutely. macchiadori kind of factories yes, where there's European lot. corporations yeah. having their clothes sewn or stitched and yes. created down in, in Tangier. Yeah, all the big brands. So is this a big part of employment in the city? Oh, yeah.
3: Textile is big industry in Tangiers. We have many, many factories and a lot of big brands in Europe, like Burberry's. England and Marks and manufacture their clothing here in Tangiers, so as the Spanish brand Zara, Cortifiel, Cortingles. Is that a good thing for Morocco to be able to work cheap for the rich Europeans? Uh, yeah, it's great labor. It's great jobs. So people are thankful for the jobs. Yes, yes, uh, yes. And Moroccan government like to attract the foreign investment, offer them low-cost labor, And tax benefit. Whatever made Morocco for export exonerated from taxes. And that's considered a smart policy by the Moroccan people? Yes, yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring Morocco,
0: specifically Tangier. If you have one day in Spain to take a side trip south over the Straits of Gibraltar, you'll land at Tangier. It used to be a miserable place. But in the last Mm -hmm. decade, it has really been cleaned up. I used to advise only going there with a tour. Now I think it's very reasonable to go there on your own you can snare a guide like Aziz or, or Donna's guide or any guide you meet on the street if you have a sense of choosing smartly to have for 30 or 40 or $50 you have your own guide for the experience and then you can dive into this medina yeah. and it's like, well, you're just so, like, it's a classic Arabic experience. Aziz, what is the latest news then for Tangier?
3: The latest news in Tangier is, is the conversion of the Tangier's port into a marina. So Tangier's part is going to be one of the nicest marinas in the Mediterranean area.
0: So from my experience, it's a big industrial port where the tourist would walk through all the, mm-hmm. the, the shipping and so on. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to be no. more of a, a recreational Recreation,
3: marina. Recreation, 100%. Recreation of one of the main stops for the cruise lines that they do Mediterranean area. And the heavy industry will be
0: moved It's already
3: apart. moved now to the new part,
0: the, part. That's big for the economy, but right now I'm in the mood for a nice, sweet cup of it's Moroccan American mint tea. tea. Take me someplace in the Medini for yeah,
3: tea. We can go to one of uh, fantastic local places, for instance, Café Baba or Café Ibn Battuta. We go up to the roof terrace and we can enjoy a cup of mint tea with beautiful view over all the old houses of the kasbah and Medina so we're on a rooftop looking down at the market action oh yeah so you can see the Berber ladies sitting on a carpet in the shade in the shade take the shoes off and sit on a carpet and look in
0: all of this Moroccans all around us sucking on these big water pipes yes (laughs) and then my big glass of tea is filled with leaves filled with leaves and how much sugar do I put
3: in ah Four four spoons.
0: Four spoons of sugar. We're in Tangier. (laughs) Aziz Bagdori, thank you so much for bringing us sweet stories of your city.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Some travelers prefer their views from two wheels rather than four. Bicycle adventurer Willie Weir joins us with another of his audio postcards from his adventures around the world.
7: Would you leave on a long journey without taking your passport? Neither would I. But I'm not talking about that wallet-sized document. I'm speaking of the two-wheeled, human-powered vehicle that has propelled me into an adventure all across the globe. I'm not an avid cyclist. I'm an avid traveler who happened to discover that cycling was my best way to see the world. Bicycles have a way of turning trips into adventures, of opening doors that would otherwise remain closed. Here's an example. I was on this epic bike journey across Canada. I cycled into the city limits of Montreal, Quebec. In those two hours of cycling into the city, at least a dozen people stopped me to ask me if I had a place to stay, offering their homes or apartments. I had to politely turn them all down. Montreal happened to be the one city where I already had a place to stay. Gaetan was a friend of a high school buddy of mine, and he welcomed me with open arms to his apartment. When I told him about all the invitations, he replied, "In Saint-Jean-Baptiste Day. Everybody is in a good mood and ready to party. Gaetan had a previous engagement, so he left me with a key and told me he would meet me later. I decided to take a walk through the old downtown neighborhoods. It was a beautiful summer evening. Many streets had been blocked off the traffic. Tables of food and drink spilled out into the streets as whole neighborhoods celebrated. I appreciated the freedom of wandering the city without having to worry about my bicycle and all my gear. i safe back at Gaetan's apartment. But my reception was less than congenial. Adults and children ignored me as I walked through these neighborhood celebrations. Every nonverbal message stated that these were private functions and meant to remain that way. What had happened to the overly friendly people of Montreal? Was I simply walking through the wrong neighborhood? Then it dawned on me. I had forgotten my passport, at least my two-wheeled version. Fifteen minutes later, I returned to the same neighborhood, this time wheeling my gear-laden bicycle. People smiled, some waved. A slender man in his forties, sporting a beret, approached me and invited me to sit down and have something to eat. He poured me a glass of wine, I finally mustered up the courage to ask him if he had seen me earlier. Yes, I did. But I I thought you were a tourist. Now I see that you are a traveler. You have earned the right to sit at this table. We lifted our glasses and toasted the day. That journey was many years ago. Since then, my bicycles opened doors to strange and exotic worlds, to homes, huts, and hovels across the world, to fiestas in Mexico, festivals in India, and ceremonies in tribal South Africa. People often ask me if I would consider traveling without my bicycle. I simply reply, and leave my passport at home? You've got to be kidding.
0: Willie's website is willyweird.com, and we provide web links to all our guest sites each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com.
4: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Keith Stickelmeyer for reading this week's Travel Haiku. When you're traveling, you can find out when other stations air Travel with Rick Steves. Look online for our affiliate listings with Listen Live links. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
5: Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Turkey, Greece, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you
0: turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Greek or Turkish adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.